Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. Stan Grant wrote Talking to My Country in the wake of fans' abuse of Aboriginal Sydney Swans footballer Adam Goods in 2015. His book is a personal and powerful response to racism in Australia from one of its most successful journalists and Wiradjuri tribesmen. With a direct gaze, Grant examines the deep wound that he attributes to dispossession, manifest in Indigenous Australians' low life expectancy and high levels of incarceration and suicide. Grant challenges his country to do better and all of us to address our prejudices. He was in conversation with Carol Hirschfeld. We hope you enjoy this session. What a great room. It is a great room. fantastic. Ngā mihi nui, kia ora koutou. Hello and a really, really warm welcome to you all. I'm Carol Hirschfeld and it's truly lovely to see you all out here today for our session in conversation with Stan Grant. Now, I'm going to be dull and boring and before we get going, I hope that you have done what you need to do with your mobile phone. So it's just a very, very gentle reminder. And and also, um, I just want to say we will have around 10 to 15 minutes at the end of the session if you wish to ask questions of Stan. So, e te manuhere tuarangi, e te kotiaraua, haere mātuku, reirangi tahi, nau mai ki Aotearoa, haere mai rā. Now, by anyone's reckoning, Stan Grant is a citizen of the world. For more than a decade, he was a journalist with CNN, one of the international TV network's elite foreign correspondents who became familiar to global audiences through his reporting of the human cost behind news events played out across many countries and continents. But it is the story behind Stan Grant himself, told in his recent memoir and meditation, Talking to My Country, that has caused a stirring so deep back in his homeland, Australia, One reviewer described it this way. It's a story so essential and salutary to this place that it should be given out free at the ballot box. (laughs) Stan's unflinching, visceral account of what it is to be living as an Indigenous Aboriginal in Australia now, not in years past. His truth about growing up black in the so-called lucky country is a wound rendered open in print. But this book, as much as being a brutal reality check on the Australian dream, is also a rich personal history about Stan's own family. Wiradjuri on his father's side, Gamma Ray on his mother's, and a strain of Irish running throughout. And beyond all of that, it's also an invitation to his countrymen to engage in a conversation that confronts the racism at the very heart of their culture. Stan, welcome to Auckland. It is a true pleasure to have you here. Please, can we have a round of applause? Thank you. Could I also say that, um, as an Indigenous person from Australia, a Radjuri Gummelroy person, that uh, I want to pay my respects to traditional owners here and say how honoured I am to be on on your land, on Māori land. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful. Now, Stan, your book, Talking to My Country, grew out of a Guardian piece that Mm. you wrote back in 2015. 
And interestingly, the starting point was um, one of the most sacred places in Australia, the footy field. Yes, I'd been, you know, it's a religious place for Australians, <laughs> even if we don't beat the All Blacks. We live in hope, you know. Um, I, uh, I'd been away from Australia for many years. I'd been reporting for CNN. I'd lived in London, Hong Kong, Beijing, throughout the Middle East. Um, and I'd come back to Australia having seen the impact of history and how the unending grievance of history can pit people against each other. And I came back to my own country mired at that time in its own historical grievance, this divide between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia, this suspicion, this wariness that we still carry amongst ourselves, and it grew out of an incident on the sporting field. Adam Goods, I don't know if a lot of you are aware of him, he's a famous Australian rules football player, AFL player, who was also Australian of the Year because of his efforts to try to bring people together, his efforts for reconciliation in Australia. And during a period um, after I'd recently returned to Australia, he was subjected to unending, week after week, this chorus of derision. Every time he would touch the ball, he would be booed relentlessly. A young girl had called him an ape while he was playing. He took objection to it. And it was almost the, uh, the spark that lit this fire of people saying, how dare you? How dare you call out racism? How dare you put that in our faces? Um, it, was a, it was a moment when Australia, and I describe it in the book as this, really turned to face itself. Is this who we are? Is this who we are going to be? Are we a country that is still unable to deal with the wounds of its past and is prepared to allow this hounding of a man week after week? In the end, he walked away from the game. It drove him from the game. He came back to play again a bit later and then ultimately retired. A dignified, incredibly successful man, a man of both white heritage and indigenous heritage, like all of us, uh, feeling as if he was rejected in his own country. I saw this and it really asked hard questions of me. I, I thought at this point, what do I do? What do I say? Do I allow this to happen? Am I prepared to say, look, this is for someone else to talk about. This is someone else's problem. I'll get on with my daily life. And I thought, no, I, I couldn't. And at my wife's urging, she said, the best thing you can do is just to write about it. So I wrote an article for The Guardian, which, as I said in the article, did not seek to say what lay in the hearts of people who were booing him. Didn't seek to, to lay a guilt trip on the rest of Australia or accuse everyone of being a racist, but just to say what we feel as Indigenous people when we heard those boos. How did it make us feel? And I said to us, the boos reminded us of something else, that those boos were in fact a howl of humiliation that echoed from 200 years of dispossession, invasion, suffering, injustice, that reminded us once again that we sit on the margins of Australia at the whim of Australians. And uh, the article created a whole debate and discussion that I'd never anticipated. I wondered about that, Stan, and we, we 
talked mm. backstage about the fact that you never thought you would be in the position to be the person to spark this kind of com no. conversation within Australia. I didn't want to be either. No, because it comes with a great burden. It comes with a great burden, and I was always very aware throughout my life that to live freely as an Indigenous person meant not being pigeonholed, meant not being put in that box marked Indigenous, to not be someone else's Indigenous person. Uh, I wanted to live free. I wanted to live in the world. Going overseas was a liberating experience for me. I was liberated from the burden of my, my own history. I was liberated from having to justify and explain myself. I was liberated from, frankly, from my own people as well and their expectations. To wear that mantle publicly as someone who is, you know, seen as a spokesperson for your people can be an incredibly crushing burden to bear. I was also aware that there were people who had carried that burden much more proudly and much for a much longer time than I had. While I was off pursuing my career in the world, they were here in the trenches fighting the fight. Um, I was aware of that. So I was reluctant to enter that space. I didn't think it was my space. I didn't think that I was worthy of it and I didn't think that it was something that I wanted to carry. And I didn't anticipate it. When I wrote the article, it was a cri de coeur. It was a cry from the heart. It was, a, it was me saying, I am someone who wants to live among you, who sees himself as one of you, who's proud to say I'm an Australian, who has lived in the world. And still you remind us that we are not. Still you remind us that we sit on the margins of Australia. It was just personal, but ultimately it became something else. So it was an incident that indeed sparked in you something very unexpected. Mm. One of the things that you did in that article and subsequently carried on through the book was to frame this as a conversation. Yes. You were talking to your countrymen. Yes. You were talking... the to non-Indigenous Australia, yes. you were also talking on behalf of your people in many ways. Yes. But it also appeared you were having a conversation with yourself, which yeah. was t extraordinarily um, exposing. Yeah. You talk in that first article, from my childhood, I often cringed against my race. To be Aboriginal was to be ashamed. Mm. Did you expect that it would be as personal as it became? No, um, but as Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, um, once said, uh, all stories are autobiography. Everything. We start with that. We make sense of the world by making sense of ourselves. And writing for me has always been books. Writing, words, was always my escape. It was the place I could disappear to. Writing has always been a cathartic experience for me as well. You know, I look at the page and it demands that honesty. As James Baldwin said, he wanted nothing more than to be a good man, an honest man and a good writer. An honest man and a good writer. And you can't be a good writer unless you are honest. When I looked at that page, it demanded honesty and demanded that I confront those things in myself. Um, it was a discussion with myself. Talking to my country could also have been talking to country, our country, the land, Australia, because ultimately... That's, why, that's who we are. It doesn't matter whether you are Indigenous or non-Indigenous. It matters that you are living on that land and to be aware of that place and that sense of place. How do we make sense of our place? 
And if you're an indigenous person with that long history and, and, and a modern history of disruption uh, and marginalization, that finding that peace and that sense of place can be an incredibly confronting experience. As one German philosopher once said, when we look at history, it takes our breath away. That's what it does to us. It takes our breath away. And that's what I felt when I, when I wrote, wrote the book. It was cathartic. It was confronting. It was a journey into myself, a journey into who we are as a people and a way of trying to make sense of my place in this land, the land of my ancestors. And a land where when you were born in 1963, you were actually counted among the flora and fauna as opposed to being counted among the citizens of the country. In, in 1901, when um, Australia was federated and became a nation, a modern nation, uh, the constitution was written and there was specifically a section, section 127, which said, for the purposes of, uh, of reckoning the number of people in the Commonwealth, native Aboriginals will not be included. So we were not counted, literally, we were not counted. Uh, at the same time, there was segregation, there were various policies that kept us apart from the rest of Australia, and we were subject to the whim of the state, people who would literally define you in and out of existence. So someone could come along and say, well, you are Aboriginal and you are not Aboriginal, in the same family. So you get to live here and you get to live there. Um, it was as arbitrary as whether you'd spent an extra hour in the sun and were a little bit darker that day. I mean, it really was. And, and we lived with this uncertainty, uh, not really counted in our own country. It was not until 1967 when a referendum was held to finally include Aboriginal people in the census. And at that point, more than 90% of Australians said yes. Um, we're coming up to the 50th anniversary of that. And never before or since has a referendum been carried so overwhelmingly in Australia. More than 90% said yes. It told us something about the Australian psyche. It told us that, yes, this is a land that can be founded in a racist idea that Aboriginal people have no place in it. Uh, the laws can be founded in segregation. But there is still something deep in the Australian values and spirit that is committed to the idea of fairness. Even if people were not having contact with Aboriginal people, even if they didn't understand that history or struggled with that history, something said, this is not right. Um, and people voted, voted yes. From that point on, we were, we were counted and things started to change politically and legally. But it was a very tenuous existence for us. And I'm delighted to hear that you're actually making a documentary mm. on the 1967 yeah, referendum. So times have changed. We've moved yeah, on a bit. I know. Going back and speaking to people of that generation, my father included, what life was like um, and how that changed our lives. There's still a long way to go, of course, um, but it was a significant milestone for us all. Uh, you mentioned your father and, uh, you know, I, actually uh, we, we talked about uh, the fact that, you know, my father is, is white Australian. Mm. Um, my mum, Ngāti Paro. Um, but one of the things I remember as a young child, my father talking about the fact that he came from the most racist country in the world. Mm. And when I read your book, it's amply stated there. Yeah, I mean, you know, when 
in South Africa, they were establishing the apartheid regime. They took a lot of lessons from Australia, particularly Queensland, and the way that segregation was so rigidly enforced in Queensland. Aboriginal people lived under what was known as the Act, um, and that Act dictated every aspect of your life. In other parts of Australia, um, if, you, if you wanted to be free of uh, the state control, you had to apply for what we referred to as dog tags, and exemption certificates that would say that, well, for the purposes of you know, the law, you could be exempt from being an Aborigine. Um, this, this was the reality of our lives. And we experienced that very directly and very personally. Um, in my own life, it meant that we lived a very tenuous, marginalised existence, um, mired in poverty. Uh, we were an itinerant, a gypsy family that moved from town to town, an extended family um, with no secure home, no work. My father looking for work wherever he could find it. And life for the first 12 or 13 years was um, of my childhood was spent in the backs of cars, in old caravans or sawmill shacks, wherever we could find a home. Um, it was, um, you know, this was the reality of life when you have emerged out of that history of colonisation and segregation. And despite that hardship, though, you describe your parents with such love and affection mm. because of the many sacrifices they clearly made to keep you together as a family unit. Yes, yes. Um, and I wondered, you know whether during those years that is where you became knowledgeable about your history yes. and your heritage, that yeah. those stories were passed down both by your parents and by the extended family yeah. that you lived in. I was always aware of that. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a strange existence. I'd go to school and, and I had a very sporadic education because the first 13 or 14 years, I changed school about 14 or 15 times. There were periods when I didn't even go to school for great, great, great lengths of time. Um, and I'd go to school and I'd be told that Captain Cook discovered Australia, discovered Australia. Um, that Blackstone, Lawson and Wentworth, three, three pioneers, crossed the Blue Mountains. Well, my ancestors were on the other side of the mountain. <laughs> I don't know, you know, they could see the smoke in the distance. So, and then I'd go home and I would learn about our traditions, Wiradjuri traditions, who our people were, you know, what our culture was. These, this was this conflict between what Australia on the one hand was telling me and what my own family were telling me. So I was very rooted in that. Even though we didn't have anything materially, we had a great sense of connection to each other and connection to place and to heritage and culture. Wonderful storytellers, my family amazing oral storytelling traditions. My mother would just spin these stories that would have you captivated for hours. And uh, I remember finding an old mission record um, from uh, the place where my, my father's grandfather, my great-grandfather lived. And I went down the list of names of people who lived on the mission. It said Bill Grant and in brackets, the storyteller. My people were storytellers. And I was so blessed to have grown up with that. One story that really um, touched my heart uh, about when you were growing up relates to your mother mm. and when she decided to throw a birthday oh, celebration God. for you. Yeah. Oh, you know, I mean, we had nothing. I'd never had a birthday party in my life and we were living in this little town. I was going to the local school 
And my mother decided, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a birthday. I must have been seven, I suppose, six or seven. And um, I don't know, she'd sort of, you know, put this fairy bread. You know, you get this, this hundreds and thousands and put it on some bread. And uh, she'd made uh, some these chocolate crackles, you know, the cake and uh, put out some sort of uh, some drinks and stuff. And we had this in the park. And she said, oh, invite your friends over. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, my God. You know, are they going to want to even come? What are they going to think? Will they laugh at us? Um, it was a really, what should have been a really beautiful thing was a terribly confronting thing. I didn't want anyone to come. I didn't want to have it. I didn't want to be, make any fuss. I didn't want to draw any attention to ourselves. I didn't want people to come and look at us and go, oh, look at them. That's all they've got. It was a terrible thing. Uh, but, you know... I look back at it now, I think, God, oh, my mother, you know, to do that, to, to do that for me um, when we had nothing. Just, that, just, that just showed what they were like, you know, amazing people. And, and your father, you know, in some ways, at, during those early years, he seemed a distant figure, but that's partly no. because he was always away working and a very yes. hard manual a labor very, jobs. He was a distant figure. He was a hard, hard man, um, heavily tattooed. You know, when you've got tattoos on your chest, you know you're a pretty serious guy, right? Um, you know, across his fingers, on his hands, up his arms. Um, he'd been in and out of jail, as most Aboriginal people were, for nothing really but the usual things. You'd be arrested for offensive language. They'd hear you swearing in the street and you'd be taken to jail. Um, he'd been beaten in cells by police. He'd been a tent boxer. He'd been a, a rugby player, um, sawmiller. And here he was, you know, a black man in Australia with this family and no way to support us except what he had in his hands. Lost the tips of three of his fingers in a sawmill accident. Um, he was... Life was just unrelentingly hard. You know, my memory of him when I was a boy was coming home and seeing him laying in a bath. We didn't have any running water or hot water. My mother would boil up the hot water in this copper that we had. And, uh, and she'd boil up this hot water and make a bath. And that was the one relief that my father would have in his life. He would lay in this bath and it would be black from sap and blood from the work. A meagre meal at night, four kids, my grandfather with us, various cousins and uncles and aunties, and he would wake up next morning at 5am in the frost or weather, go down and work in a sawmill to come back for a bath and a meal, and that was it. So of course he was a remote, hard figure, unknowable, very tough, would not give me an inch to move because he feared, he feared that if he did not keep things on the straight and narrow, that I was going to have the life that he'd had. And he did not want me to have to have that life. So he was a very, very hard man. So that was the vision. You were conscious of that from both your parents, that you, children... More than anyone, ...would me. not have yeah. the life that they had. More than anyone, me. I don't know why, but my younger brothers and my sister got off a little bit easier. There was a little bit more leeway. Um, I don't know what it was. I was the eldest. Um, I, I had a great sense of responsibility. You know, I would get up early. 
I would chop the wood, I would make a fire and get, place, get the things warm for when other people got up. Uh, my grandfather came home drunk. Um, I would wait to hear him and when he was staggering up the, the path. I'd go out and help him to bed. I would you know, make sure that my, my brothers and sisters were looked after. I, I, would, I would try to make things as easy as possible for my, my mum. And, uh, and so they, I had a great weight of responsibility and they, had, they put a lot of store in that. And uh, so I think I felt from a very early age that um, I was going to have to do something, you know. That, um, and, I, and I was aware of that as well. I don't know what it is that lights that spark, but from a really young age, I was obsessed with books and reading. I would escape into these other worlds. I would sit in a tree outside my grandmother's house and I would look down at the rest of the world and think, I've got to get out of here. This, is, this, will, this will kill me. If, I, if I'm trapped here. Um, so I was very aware of that. And your mother was hugely encouraging of your appetite for books? Yeah, yeah. She would, again, you know, she would find anything she could. If we, um, a lot of our life, you know, our existence really to make ends meet was relying on charities and my mother would go to the local churches and the second-hand stores and um, they used to hand out these vouchers um, to get food from the local supermarket and uh, and uh, and if my mother was ever in a second-hand store or something she would um, find a book whatever it was they'd be fantastic books you know even when I was seven or eight years old I'm reading Hemingway and Dickens and Twain and and I'm like wow you know this is amazing and and to me because I wasn't having a structured education um, it felt normal this is what people read it's what the middle class were throwing out in those yeah book yeah bins. yeah yeah so so this is what people read. I wasn't thinking, well, you know, a 15 or 16-year-old should be reading this. Yeah. I'm seven or eight and I'm reading these. <laughs> I, I remember I, I once my mum brought home a book of Greek mythology. Wonderful. And um, I was just captivated, you know, by, by Greek myth. And, uh, yeah, so she really encouraged that. Um, you know, they, thought, they thought I was a bit weird, to be honest. My, my brothers and sisters, all, you know, you ask them now and they go, oh, yeah, he's a, he's a weirdo. You know, he would he would sit in the room, he'd read. He, you know, he would never talk to us. He was always in his own world. You know, so uh, I did all the other things. You know, I loved playing football, rugby. You know, I was, I was good at football, and you know, so that, that that was really important to my life. But I'd always sneak off and and find a place to read as well. It was in your teen years, though, where that reading took a kind of politicised bent. It was yes, James, James Baldwin. James Baldwin. You know, I'm sure a lot of you here are aware of him as a great American black American writer, and I was raised um, in the church as well, the Aboriginal mission churches. So that evangelical church that really adapted from the Southern Baptist traditions in America was sort of mirrored in Australia. There was an Aboriginal evangelical fellowship that emerged out of these missions and some of my uncles were involved in it. The hierarchy of the Aboriginal society actually was really counted among this sort of religious cohort. And... Um, I'd go to the local churches and, you know, the, the mission churches and sing these old spirituals. It was another world. It was fire and brimstone, you know, the old spiritual songs from the American South. And uh, one of them, of course, was go tell it on the mountain, you know, let my people go. And then I remember when I must have been 13 or 14, I was at a library and um, I saw this go tell it on the mountain. I thought, oh, this must be about the song. So I, I got the book and, uh, wow, you know, 
just changed life. completely changed my life. I mean, he, uh, he was a black writer writing unapologetically and unstintingly and unsentimentally about his life and his people. These were real human beings. These weren't caricatures. It wasn't, you know, um, Jim and Huck Finn. This is, this was, these were people with real lives, people with failings, families with secrets, this struggle between their blackness and white America, the struggle between the, the God and, and the world that have forsaken them, you know? How did it make you feel? Well, it made me feel uh, connected. It made me feel as if there's a voice for me in the world. Um, James Baldwin, you know, the book is about a boy who was a similar age to me, a coming-of-age story, you know, challenging his father's authority, wondering about his place in the world. This was, um, this was directly relevant to my experience. Um, so I felt like I, I had a voice. I felt like there's this man who was a beautiful writer and, and writing about something that I could understand. I could see myself in those pages. And then, of course, later I, it opened up the world of Baldwin's political writing, his essays, um, The Fire Next Time, and you know, Notes of a Native Son, um, the other novels that he'd written, his own struggle with his, his place in America. He'd gone to France uh, to escape blackness and whiteness. Um, he's, he was gay. He was, he was living with all of these things. So... Um, I, I, I saw a kindred spirit uh, speaking in a way, and the writing as well was just this beautiful writing. He's an amazing, uh, amazing writer. Hey? And uh, so, yeah, he, he became... Um, I've, you know, my wife bought me recently a uh, first edition copy of Go Tell It on the Mountain. Wow, beautiful, beautiful you know, beautiful thing. And um, it's still an important book. I, li I read it, uh, try to read it every couple of years, and... Um, last year I, I got it on audiobook and uh, funnily enough, this, this is the synchronicity, you know, the way, weird way of the world. And I, I put on the audiobook and I was driving to my parents' house, about six or seven hours drive out of Sydney, and I put this on and it was, um, it said, Go Tell It on the Mountain, James Baldwin, read by Jesse Martin. Well, my son's name is Jesse Martin Grant. I mean, what a, what, what a weird thing. And... Um, <laughs> So, so this has sort of followed me around, and every time I listen to it, I, I hear something else, that I, or read something else that I may have missed, and that's the mark of a brilliant book. There's always something new in it, always a new revelation. So you heard a voice, you started to form your own voice, but it was really, you did get to a sort of point in your life, just coming out of your teens into your early 20s, where where there was a crossroads, like it happens for many of us. Oh, you could have, yeah. You could have gone one way, but yeah. you, were, you chose another. Well, cho I didn't really choose either. It was sort of uh, fate. You know, I've had a, you know, got a ridiculously blessed existence in, in so many ways. Um, when I was 15, we were living in my hometown. We'd moved back and forth constantly. And this stage, I was going to high school there, and uh, there were, we were caught up to the principal's office. There was a whole lot of us, and Aboriginal kids, and my cousins. And he basically told us that we were coming to the age when we were no longer legally required to be at school, so why don't we just get out? You know, that there is no, there is no future for you here. Sadly, a lot of boys did, and, um, and a lot of them are dead today. You know? um, but I, my father got a job fortuitously in Canberra. We went from being in a really strong Aboriginal community to this very white city. My sister and I were the only Aboriginal kids in, uh, in, in school. It allowed me to disappear. It allowed me to sort of 
you know, sort of fall between the cracks a bit. And I just... That's got... an interesting idea, because yeah. actually being the only ones, you'd think you would stand out much more... Yeah, we did. But, explicitly. But I didn't have to um, confront it, I suppose. I could sort of play a lot of sport, have your friends, um, and just let it, let it ride, you know? And so I, I, I got through school, not particularly, um, you know, stellar, but, um, you know, I, I got through school. And then I was delivering mail at the Institute of Aboriginal Studies in Canberra. Um, and uh, my uncle was a janitor there, and he got me a job. Um, I was pushing a trolley, and I was very happy, actually. You know, push the trolley around, no care, play football on the weekends, you know, life was good. And um, there was an Aboriginal woman there who was doing her PhD at the time. She was a research uh, researcher officer there, and um, she pulled me aside, took me into the library, and she really sort of dressed me down, you know, and she said, listen, this is not what your parents sacrificed for. This is not what you should be doing in life. You've, you've managed to get through school. You've got potential. Um, she said, you should think about university. And within a week, she'd got the university forms and filled them out and <laughs> got me signed, drove me to Sydney and, uh, you know... She was working on your firstborn guilt as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, she was. And then I, I, I went to university. I thought, oh, well, you know, OK, why not? And then, of course, wow, you know, suddenly a world opens up. There is a, a world of ideas and politics. Aboriginal people are going to university. There are a handful of us there. We sort of all bound together. Um, and, uh, and I started to confront the world, to make sense of the world that I'd lived in. I was getting a vocabulary that could allow me to express the things that I'd innately felt, the things that I'd intuitively understood. Now I had a language to, to express that. And from there, you know, um, journalism and everything else sort of fell into place and uh, I, I've just been very, very fortunate to be at the right place, right time, with the right people supporting me that's opened so many doors. Well, the journalism, though, feels like a very natural step, given, yes. given the line of storytellers yes. that you came from. Yeah. The moment I went into journalism, I thought, wow, this, this, um, this makes sense for me. I, I can do this. Uh, I'd been working... I, I was a copy boy at the Canberra Times, which was just, you know, delivering... Um, the, the copy, moving it around the office, picking up lunch orders, cleaning the car of the news news director, news editor, uh, doing all that I stuff. Wish yeah, those were the good old those days. Were the good old days. <laughs> and then I, then I, you know, inevitably as you do, you know, you meet someone, and someone said, "Listen, there's a radio uh, opening, radio cadetship with the Macquarie Radio Network, it's a commercial radio network. Um, you should apply for it." So you know, I applied for that. Again, really, really lucky. I go in for the interview and the guy who's interviewing me, he had a stepbrother who's Aboriginal, brought up with him. And he, he got it. And he said, you know, I'll give him a chance. So I turned up and uh, I'd been there about two weeks and um, there was a huge bushfire in Canberra. And as it happened, no one else was in the newsroom, just me and the newsreader and the news director. And he said to me, listen, you're going to have to go get in the car, um, it's about a quarter to the hour, go to the, the fire and we'll come to you for a live report. Live I've never done this in my life. So I'm, I'm in the car, I'm driving around, of course, you know, all the roads are blocked. So, and he's coming to me going, how are you going? Oh, yeah, you know, good, yep. Uh, and he said, so are you right? You'll be right at the top of the hour? Yep, no problems at all. I'm thinking, I can't see anything. All I'm seeing is a roadblock. And, and there was about, it was about three minutes to the hour. 
And I saw a hill and I thought, if I go up the hill, at least I could see things. So as I went to the hill, of course, there is the fire. The, everything, houses on fire, the flames, the smoke, the firefighters, the whole scene. Um, and I plugged in, put the headphones on, bang, as they came to the top of the news, came to me. And all I did was describe what I was seeing. But this was what I'd done all my life. Storytelling, you know, this, it's, it felt completely natural to me. Um, I came back and I never looked back after that. You know, they were like, wow, you know, edit whatever you want to do. You know, go off. Um, I, the, no, very... uh, actually, I read it. I, it was, I had sickening uh, sort of memory of my very first oh, life cross, which was quite similar. But, yeah, yeah, they you know... throw you into that. It's sink or swim, and I, I, I enjoyed it. It was a very racist place as well. Well, you know? I was going to ask you, you yeah. must have been in so many newsrooms oh, God. where you Awful. were the only yeah. brown face. And they didn't care. You know, they used to have a saying, um, if something was done well, they'd go, you're a white man. <laughs> they turned to each other. You know, you're a white man. So what decision did you make? Uh, you know, they, they to, would, as to how you were to respond to that. Look, they would use words, you know, all the usual words, you know, um, abo, boon, kung, uh, abo, boon, kung, you know, all this sort of stuff, and just throw it around. And, and I'd be there thinking, you know, I would shrink. You know, you'd hear this and I'd just think, I'm, I'm a kid, you know, and you've got to confront this. And these are the people who I'm working with and for. Um, and I don't think they meant anything by it. I just think that's just how they spoke. That was just this cavalier, irreverent way of newsrooms. Um, something... It's a, yeah, it's something a kind of nonchalant racism. Nonchalant. Yeah. And, and sort of endearing in a really, in a really perverse <laughs> that way. That might be a step too far. No, no, no. no, no <laughs> in, a, in a perverse way, it's sort of... There was this levelling process, you know what I mean? It was mm. like they weren't holding anything against me. They weren't saying you can't do something because you're Aboriginal. They were just... You know, you're a white man. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but I just decided very early, look, I can have endless argument and confrontation here or I can win the big battle. Mm. I can be better than them. And, and I just thought, I will be better than you. I will be a better reporter than you. I will win the, the ultimate victory here. And so I, you know, I, I, I sort of just got on with it and, and I would go out and do my job and, and very quickly, you know, I went to being a TV reporter for the ABC as a political reporter in Canberra. I was about 23. By 27, I had my own national current affairs program on the Seven Network, the big commercial network. Um, after that, I was overseas as a foreign correspondent. The world. So things just rapidly changed for me. You, um, were, you were better than them. And, and I was better than them, you know, and, and I worked harder than them. I got up earlier than them. I worked when I was sick. I read all the time. I did not want to leave one stone unturned. I was not going to leave anything to chance. They were never going to catch me out. They were never going to put me in a position where I did not know. I wanted to know everything, everything. And you know, you talked earlier about um, James Baldwin um, going effectively into exile and yeah. sort of thinking yes. about his racial identity from afar. And effectively, that's, that's kind of where you ended up yeah. in terms of taking that role with CNN. Amazingly prestigious job, mm. but, you know, all the time there was a toll, you know, it, it, from 
what I read in your book, best of times, the worst of times yes, in yes. many ways. Yeah. Look, you know, CNN again was one of those happy accidents. I'd been working in London for the Seven Network as a correspondent and I got to know some CNN reporters. I'd moved back to Australia at the end of my term and um, I'd been back home for just a matter of months and I got a phone call. Came back from the beach actually after a surf one day and, and it, was the, it was from New York and it was the... Um, Vice President of CNN, who's someone who's given my number and said, um, I'm coming to, to uh, Hong Kong next week. Can you fly up and we want to talk to you about a job? Literally, that's how it happened. I went to Hong Kong and I took the job and moved, went back to Australia and we packed our bags and a week later we were living in Hong Kong. So, and then, you know, Hong Kong, Beijing, the Middle East, it just coincided with the 9-11 bombing. Um, uh, I was pitchforked into this world of conflict and terrorism and war, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq. Um, I was then based in China and coincided with the rise of China, um, North Korea developing nuclear weapons. And I, I saw all of this firsthand, you know, the old cliche about journalism, it's the first draft of history. And I got to see a lot of these things as the first draft of, of history. But it takes an enormous toll. You know, I was, I was awash in blood for 10 years and I didn't even realise it. Um, become very blasé about these things. I was in Israel reporting and we were there for several months and um, my wife flew out to spend some time with me from Hong Kong and we were organising to have lunch and I was walking down the street in Jerusalem and I got a phone call there'd been a double suicide bombing, a double bus bombing. Um, so I called my wife and said, look, we can't have lunch, I've got to go to this bus bombing. So I turn up and there's shattered glass and blood and severed limbs and bodies and... And I'm reporting this live and seeing this, smelling it, touching it. Um, and then within a matter of hours, they cleaned it up, hosed it all down, took the bodies away, opened the roads up. We finished our reporting. I went back, called my wife and said, what's for dinner? That's just not how life should be. No. And I did this. I did this all the time. You know, you'd go out and we'd go to a terrorist bombing and then go back and have a pizza. Um, we would, you know, you'd go to a, to a refugee camp and look at people who were who you know are going to die. Children that you know will not get the help that they need and the medical treatment they need and they will die. And then go back and um, listen to music. I mean, the, the, this, this, this conflict between one, that world and the world I was reporting on and uh, it, it, ultimately the other thing, of course, is that by immersing myself in this type of reporting, I was really trying to understand where I came from. I was going to ask you about this because, I mean, there are many uh, roads that you can take in journalism, but you seem to be drawn to yeah. telling a particular story. Yeah. And it is about the human cost. And yeah. it is about how the, the impact yes. that terrible events may have had on a community. One, one question, there's one question I've been trying to answer and been drawn to in my entire journalistic career, and it is this. What do people do when all certainty is removed? That's it. That's the only question I want to answer. What do people do when there's war, economic upheaval, political revolution? What do you do when you lose your land, you lose your language, you lose your home? What do you do when the state controls every aspect of your life? When what you believe to be certain you know, um, there's a great Polish Nobel Prize winning poet, Czeslaw Milos, had a beautiful poem once and it said, 
uh, amid thunder, the golden house of is collapses and the process of becoming ascends. We are all in a process of becoming. That golden house of is collapses around it. We, it. Right now, the world is in a state of upheaval and flux. This nascent populism, this division, the gap between rich and poor widening, climate change. You know, I was listening to Lawrence Krauss last night, the, the theoretical physicist speaking just here, and he was talking about moving the doomsday clock 30 seconds closer to midnight. You know, this is the world we are in, the golden house of is collapsing. I've always been drawn to that story, and by reporting that story, I was trying to make sense of myself. But what I was doing was putting a layer and another layer and another layer of trauma on top of a childhood trauma that had still never been resolved. And ultimately, that left me completely wiped out. And completely. there was a collapse toward the end. Completely. And these things happen um, slowly. It's a slow car wreck. You're not even aware of it. My wife used to always say to me, listen, there's something wrong. You're not right. You've, you've got to go and speak to someone, you know. And I'd say, no, 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 there's nothing wrong with me. There's something wrong with you. You know, <laughs> you're, you're living in... I'd say this to you, you're living in fantasy land. You don't realise how bad the world is. You wanted to get out there and realise just how ugly things are. It's like, why would you want to live with ugliness? You know, that is not normal. That's not, too, that's not normal. And of course it's not normal, you know. It is normal. It is okay to live with joy. It's okay to... to, to to appreciate the love of your family and good things. Um, doesn't mean we turn away from the darkness, but it's okay to enjoy. But, I, but all joy had gone out of my life. And I was, my mind was racing at just this, uh, this furious pace. I couldn't sleep. You know, My sleep was all broken anyway because I was constantly travelling. Um, there was a period of about six months where... Um, I probably slept for about an hour a night. And even then it was broken sleep. It was 10 minutes here and I'd wake up and 10 minutes there and I'd wake up and uh, uh, I was having nightmares. Um, you know, I would, I would sometimes start an argument with my wife to, just so that I would have the energy to stay awake. That's how, how perverted this became. And I became obsessed with time. Mm. I became you, fixated on time. You describe it really well. I was saying to you when, when I was reading the chapter that, that you're talking ab mm. about this, and it was like a scene out of Goodfellas, the yeah. Scorsese movie. It's yeah. just, it's frenetic. Frenetic. So, you know, I would, uh, the only thing I could control, well, I was, I was a control freak, and I still am really, but, but, I, <laughs> but I, um, I, I needed to control everything in my life because control meant staying alive, you know? I needed to make sure when we went out on a... If we were going... We would go and meet members of the Taliban on our own, on their tur turf. I had to make sure that everything was planned so that we would get in and get out. Everything timed to the second, you know? Um, so I became obsessed with time and planning every aspect of my day until I was... Couldn't even sleep, you know, because I was so sort of wound up about time. And, and I used to have this thing where I would, um, I would need to be at the gym as soon as it opened, six o'clock, on the dot, in Beijing. If I was one minute late, my whole day was ruined. Whole day was ruined. Then I became so obsessed with that, I thought, no, I'll get there five minutes earlier. <laughs> then I won't possibly be late. So I'd be looking, watching, wake, go to sleep, wake up, go to sleep, wake up, go to sleep, wake up. Oh, okay. oh it's three o'clock. It's ten past three. 
oh, it's four o'clock. Okay, wake up. Get to stay awake. Go there. And then, then I thought, what if I could actually get there half an hour earlier and, and, and break in to the gym? See, there were a few clues here, Stan, I found, that things weren't going well. I know? found <laughs> where they used to keep the, the clock and where they, where they used to kick the, 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 key, oh, no. the key and where they used to turn on all the lights. So I would get in earlier, get the key, open it up and turn the lights on and be training by the time they all got there. <laughs> they thought I was just a crazy person. So, um, and I was a crazy person. But yeah. that's, that's what happens to you. Yeah. Your mind just gets completely wrung out. And the way you found some solace and sucker was, was actually to return back to your roots. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, it was being drawn back home. I felt that every time I would go home, I'd just think, why am I not here? You know, the light was so beautiful. The smell was so comforting. The, mm. the, I, I missed that look. All the things about Australia, all the things you miss when you're at home. It's nostalgia, really. It's not real. It's totally nostalgic, but it's... Um, it's very alluring, that nostalgia. So, um, But it's more particular. It was very much about uh, your Wiradjuri roots. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, I, I, I felt... I just felt I needed to reconnect. Mm -hmm. So I... Um, you know, we, we did... I, I took about three months out and I went back to, to Sydney and, uh, and I just let my mind settle. I just needed to take it. I went back and did another year or so at CNN and then my contract ended and they wanted me to stay for another, sign on for another three years and I thought, I, I, at that point, no, it was time to go back and boy, our children were getting older and, um, and it coincided. I went back just at that time when... This these, maelstrom This around. debate was happening. This, these, 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 Australia was shifting, you know? And I arrived at that time when Australia was shifting and... All of these experiences, childhood, journalism, out in the world, seeing the big movements of history, all of those things sort of came together uh, to deliver me to a point where I felt comfortable uh, and confident enough to express myself and to write about these things in a way that hopefully other people could take something from. And what has happened since, Dan, since the... The articles since the writing of this book, because you've indicated that the response was far beyond yes. what you had anticipated. Yeah, the book the book gained an audience far greater than I could ever have hoped for. It's won a lot of awards. It's um, it's it, you know it's it's been transformative really. Um, it's it's a challenge, you know, because I feel uneasy, uncomfortable sometimes about where that's where that's put me because I'm still interested in. Other things. I don't want to be typecast as here's the indigenous man. You know, he talks about indigenous issues. I, I just wrote an essay last night for ABC Online, um, talking about the the challenge to the future of Western liberal democratic order and the economic challenges we face in the world, um, the rise of populism, authoritarianism, um, China and its challenges to the world. Uh, you know, I'm interested in the world mm. and I don't want to be defined and confined to an indigenous space. I don't want someone to put me in a box. So I've, I've been trying to keep prize open that space for myself. Um, I'm writing again another book. There's a couple more books I have in, and and what I'm trying to do now is to say, ask myself a lot of hard questions. I don't seek to speak for Aboriginal people. I don't seek to speak for anyone but myself. And if people, you know, if people 
are able to get something from that, that that's fantastic. If it starts a debate and a conversation, that's fantastic. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to reposition the Indigenous struggle in Australia in a global sense. Ask the big questions about what does it mean to be... What is the role of the nation-state in a globalised, interconnected world? What is the role of identity? How do we live with multiple identities in a nation-state and still have an allegiance to each other at the same time? When we have the mass movement of people and goods, that undercuts the sense of certainty. Jobs are disappearing. The face of nations is changing. Borders are coming down and going back up again. Um, this is a, you know, this, the sands are shifting and I'm trying to sort of cast my net very widely and to ask, so where are we in that? How do we fit into that? There are big questions of identity. There are real questions of history. Um, one of the lessons I've taken from my reporting is that if we are chained to unending history, historical grievance, if we cannot move beyond the chains of history, then we will be locked forever into that unending struggle, that unending hostility and violence. We see this all around the world. The exclusive identity framed around historical grievance that pits people against each other. Catholic, Protestant, Hutu, Tutsi, uh, Tutsu and Hutu in Rwanda. Um, Shia and Sunni, Islam. Hindu and Muslim, North and South Korea. You know, we, we see this everywhere. For Aboriginal people in Australia, and I'm sure here in New Zealand, you face similar questions. What are we prepared to get up, give up and get over? What are we prepared to hold on to? What are we prepared to accept? Um, do we fashion identities that are exclusive and in opposition to each other? Or do we have identities that are more fluid? Yes, I'm an Indigenous person, but it's not all I am. Um, how do we find that commonality as well as embrace and accept the differences? Um, so I'm really struggling with a lot of those issues and trying to make sense of that and to try to write about that and to hopefully prize open that space a bit for a bit more of discussion. Stan, can I thank you for standing up and talking to your country and talking to Love us that. and talking to the world about a changing Australia and... Also, we wish you the very, very best in the future. And in your, um, you, the business that you are doing now in opening this space for conversation, for making a new future. And it's been a thrill to meet you. Thank you. And it's been wonderful to spend the Thank last you, hour with Thanks you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.